this morning. Uh, I did an introductory message on, on the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's, a, it's an issue that a lot of Christians in our day, I would say most, most Christians in our day, uh, either struggle with or don't struggle with it at all for the wrong reason of not struggling with it. Uh, they believe uh, uh, the, that God has dispensationalized this, the fourth commandment uh, out of the new covenant. I, I think that's wrong, and the major bulk of the history of the Christian church has not held that view at all. It's very modern. Um, and so I wanted to introduce the subject, and, and I said things like, this is a huge issue. If I didn't say that, um, I'm saying it now. Massive. Uh, good brothers and sisters disagree on it. In my experience, and I've been a Christian since 1984 and first started wrestling with this issue in 1988 while I was in seminary because a fellow seminarian started filling my ear with this weird stuff. And he said, it's, I read the Banner of Truth books and they, they teach it. And I'm going, Banner of Truth is Sabbatarian? Oh, course, somebody had trained me to make a face whenever I heard the word Sabbath, you know. So I started reading that stuff, and I'm going, uh-oh. They got, like, huge arguments that I had never, ever considered before. So I've been wrestling with this myself, you know, for a long time, and I know other people do. Um, you know, when you like my pastor friend, who is a pastor now, but wasn't at the time I was talking about earlier. We were driving in Lancaster, and he goes, you're a Reformed Baptist. What about that chapter 22 in your confession? You know, the Christian Sabbath. What in the world is that? Where'd you get that from? And when I quoted Matthew, uh, Mark 2.27 to him, uh, the, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And he asked me the question, you know, where'd you get that? And I said, the Bible, Jesus. Um, my experience is that people like that who have the, somebody trained them to push back. That's their knee jerk is to push back. That's their instinct. Somebody trained them to do that. Uh, my experience is that most of those people haven't really studied the matter out. So I'm going to help you study the matter out in the next 93 part series, uh, sermon series on the subject matter. Now, I could just say read my book. She read it, right? Some people have read it. There are two books that actually where I cover this subject. One is Better Than the Beginning, and then the book Getting the Garden Right is Better Than the Beginning on Steroids, okay? It's everything I wanted to say in the first book that I didn't say, um, and it's quite exhaustive. But I'm not going to say that because I am your pastor. I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to teach you the scriptures. Uh, I am going to recommend the reading of books. There are several of them back there. Uh, but now it's time to preach. And so I, what I did this morning is I just tried to, tried to introduce it. It's a big subject. What has helped me over the years is this bookends approach. I don't know when I read that book, but I read a book entitled the end of the beginning or something like that, so you know where I got my title from. And it was written by a, a, an Australian scholar who I think might be uh, with the Lord now. But what he did is he analyzed 
Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and Revelation 20 through 22, what I kind of did this morning. And I started reading this book. I'm going, oh, I'd never really thought that way. Wow, the themes. And not only did he show that the themes that start there end up at the end of Scripture, that start at the beginning of Scripture, end up at the end of Scripture, but he traced some of the themes through, I think, Isaiah primarily. He said, look, Isaiah has some of these themes as well, and Isaiah goes back to the beginning parts of the Bible, but he's not talking about the beginning parts. He's using the language of the beginning parts, but he's pointing to the future. And then, you know, Christ in the New Testament takes us to the ultimate future, the eternal state. So it's been helpful to me to do that, and hopefully it was helpful to you. I had those seven observations, which I've said before. Anytime I bring seven observations, you know it's infallible because the seven is the number of perfection. I'm kidding. Seven observations tying the end of the Bible with the beginning of the Bible. So in each, almost each one, something started to uh, be repeated is how do we go from this getting all messed up to this getting fixed like that? Remember what the answer was? Jesus. So I tried to show you that because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian minister. Uh, I proclaim him. Paul said that in Colossians, and we proclaim him. He didn't pedal himself. He wasn't a peddler of himself. We preach not ourselves, but Christ. How often should I preach Christ? Every sermon I preach, I try to preach Jesus. And hopefully you saw that this morning. Now these considerations that were made this morning indicate that the end is the beginning brought to a better state of existence. Okay, we saw that. You got this thing over here, the beginning. You got it messed up by the fall into sin and God's judgment and acted upon the creature, the creation, not just the creatures made in his image, but the earth ends up being messed up as well. Um, And then you have that way over there. So the, the issue is, it's very clear the, the end is the beginning brought to a glorious and permanent state. Um, the riddle, though, there's a riddle, okay, to be solved. And the riddle, uh, and you know the answer already, the riddle to be solved is how did that happen? Not creation and the fall, okay, that's a given. How does this renovation, how does this restoration take place that affects not only fallen human nature, body and soul, but also this renovation that affects, that brings about this new created order, new heavens and new earth. So the riddle to be solved is how and who brings the sin-stained, cursed creation to its new state of existence. And the answer is the United States of America, the greatest country in the history of the world, right? No. Um, We all know the answer, but I'm going to preach Jesus to you anyway. I hope that's okay. 
The answer is, this is a long sentence. I've used this sentence before, but it's basically a a bunch of scripture language all put together. I'm trying to go chronologically through scripture. The answer to the riddle, who brings this sin-cursed, stained creation to a better state than its created state? The answer to that riddle is the seed of the woman. Right? The son of Abraham, we could say. How about this one? The lion of the tribe of Judah. We're still in the Old Testament. The prophet greater than Moses. We jumped into the book of Deuteronomy. One greater than Joshua. The son of David. The child of the virgin. We jumped all the way to Isaiah now. The branch of the Lord, Jeremiah, and other prophets. The righteous suffering servant of the Lord, Isaiah 53. The embodiment of all that Israel was not. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Hosea 11.1, Matthew tells us that's actually about Jesus. Jesus is faithful Israel. The one who went forth for the Lord to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from long ago. Remember the riddle. How does this messed up, sin-cursed old creation become a new creation better than the uncursed first creation? How does it get there? Who does that? We're saying Jesus. To be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth from long ago, from the days of eternity, Micah 5.2, the Lord whom you seek, who suddenly came to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, Malachi 3.1. The one conceived of the Holy Spirit named Jesus. Now we're in the New Testament. For he will save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, Matthew 1.23, citing Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 8.10, Isaiah 9, 6, putting them, collating those three Isaiahic texts, putting them together. Emmanuel, which translated means God, God with us. So the riddle to be solved is the sin-cursed old creation is transformed, is renovated into a new creation. Who does that? The Son of God called out of Egypt, Matthew 2.15. The one led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, Matthew 4.1. Right after the genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, the Son of God, Matthew 4.1 has the Spirit driving the incarnate Son of God out into a wilderness to be tempted. Not into the temple to be tempted, Adam was tempted in a temple and then kicked out of the temple garden into the wilderness. Jesus comes into the wilderness, is tempted into the wilderness, quotes scripture so that pastors can beat their people over the head for living lousy Christian lives because they don't quote, they don't memorize scripture. That's why that's in the Bible, right? No. Should we memorize scripture? Yes. Dave's making faces at me. Should we memorize scripture? Yes. Did Jesus memorize scripture? Yes. 
But why is Matthew 4 in there and Luke 4 in there that talk about this encounter that the last Adam had with the serpent? To teach us morals? Or to display our hero? I like the later view. It preaches better. Behold, brothers and sisters, the incarnate Son of God was tempted in the wilderness for us and for our salvation. Unlike the first Adam in the garden, he couldn't even stay sinless in the garden. The last Adam in the wilderness beats the devil. The Son of God appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. The one who said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will build my church. Hmm. Uh, uh, Eve was, remember that sermon, built from Adam? I think there's some older commentators that say the Hebrew nuance, the nuance of the Hebrew term there means built, and, and they connect it with, I will build my church. The first Adam was a type of the last Adam. The first Eve is a type of the last Eve, the church. Type of Christ and the church. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The one who said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Word who became flesh. The Son of God. The one who both cleansed the temple of God and claimed to be the temple of God. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. That's the... Context, the context there included him, you know, pushing out over tables and driving people out of the temple for making God's house the place for them to make money. He cleanses the temple. His temple, the temple of his body, is destroyed, in quotes. He raises it up ends up destroying that physical temple as well by an act of divine providence not long after that. But he still has a temple. The church is called the temple in a few places. This same one who is the answer to the riddle to be solved, how does the old sin-stained creation get to that glorious state promised in many places in Scripture, but we've been looking at the end of the Bible, primarily Revelation 22. The one who ends up doing that is the one who both cleansed the temple of God and claimed to be the temple of God. The one who said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. So he has authority to tell others who represent him, the apostles in that case, to go, to, you have a universal mission. You're to spread this message about Jesus all over the earth. And what's going to happen is some will believe it, baptize him, and then teach him. Some, there's a fire. Just make sure it's like, 
not real close and we're okay. If somebody can look, I don't know if you can open the door, but I can smell it. Anyway, this one has authority to, to, to tell others, you now have authority delegated from me to you to go all over the globe and to make believers, make disciples, baptize them and teach them. And if you read the entirety of the New Testament, you know what that is. That's how people come to faith in Christ and then enter into church membership. In other words, he says, I'm going to build my church and you're going to do it as my representatives on earth and others are by preaching the gospel, making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. And so we're going to have these templeettes all over the earth until the entire new earth is, is itself a temple. So have you ever thought about our church as an Edenette, a templeette? Local churches are what? They are places where God, according to his promise, uh, not merely places, but groups of people, that might be better said, groups of people covenanted together who have the promises of God terminating upon them, especially when they're assembled together according to the word of God. We're on a mountain. Okay, we're on a high place. That is, God manifesting, God, God exhibiting his presence to us in unique ways. By the way, I think somebody asked me, should basically, I think they're asking this, should Sundays, could we view, should we view Sundays as a foretaste of glory? Uh, yes, there's a John, of course we should, foretaste of glory. Why? Because on the Lord's day, we're God's people in God's place under God's rule. Similar to the garden, similar to the eschaton, you know, the eternal state. So it's this one, Jesus, who says all these things now. I'm just quoting the New Testament. He's the one that does this. The one who suffered, then entered in his glory. The one who worked, and then, like God at creation, entered into his rest. The one who has all things in subjection under his feet. That's not us. That's the Lord Jesus, who is head over all things. And then this marvelous prepositional phrase, to the church, for the benefit of the church. Universal sovereignty with a particular uh, apple of his eye. The church. The church being a holy temple in the Lord. A dwelling of God in the spirit. Ephesians chapter 2. And the household of God. What was the first household of God? Eden. What was the next one? Probably those mountaintop thingies. Um, Bethel, this is the house of God. Uh, the tabernacle, and then the temple, and then 
that to which those things pointed, Jesus, and then his mystical body, the church, a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling of God in the spirit, the household of God, the one who is bringing many sons to glory. He's the one that solves the riddle, who is coming again that those he has called may gain his glory. Second Thessalonians 3.14. We're going to gain his glory. I'm going to become God. God's going to give his glory to another. Or could it be talking about the glory according to his human nature that he was endowed with upon his resurrection? If you're saying yes, I think that's it. We're going to be glorified, in other words. We're going to not be falling short of glory. We're going to be Enter, we're going to enter into a glorified state of human existence better than Adam's created state because we can't fall from it. We're going to gain the glory of our Lord who, who will usher in new heavens and new earth in which dwells right, righteousness. 2 Peter 3.13 He who was sent by the Father in the fullness of time, the one born of a woman, do you hear echoes of the Old Testament there? Born of a woman, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Galatians 4 goes all the way back to the curse pronounced upon the serpent in Genesis 3. Born of a woman, born under the law. He assumed our nature, body and soul. He assumed our duties born under the law in order that he might redeem he assumed our liabilities he's going to redeem us he's going to save us how does he do that by his righteous life by his wrath bearing death that we the redeemed people might receive the adoption as sons believers are sons and daughters of the most high all the privileges of being a child of God, they're ours equally. I don't get more than you. You don't get more than me. Paul didn't get more than me. The Pope, well, I don't know. That's not a good example, um, uh, especially the current Pope. Uh, no believe all believers in that sense were all bro brothers and sisters and equal. All the privileges of adoption are all the property of all, actually they're the property of the Lord, but he lavishes them all upon us. In other words, the solution to the riddle is a divine solution. We call it Christianity, the incarnation of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ the skull-crushing seed of the woman, the incarnate Son of God for us and for our salvation, the second man, the last Adam, the Lord of glory, who is coming again to raise the dead, condemn the wicked, and make all things new. That's why the Bible ends, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Because of those kind of truths. And all I did is kind of just walk you through some important statements in Scripture from the Old all the way through the New Testament. We all knew the answer, the, the riddle solved, Jesus. When you put it together, and hopefully I did that in a helpful way, um, 
it's hard not to say amen and you know those kinds of things go this is this is this is pretty important like there's sorrow and death and cancer and strokes and all kinds of stuff that people experience every single day even saints struggle and go through dark valleys in their experience as Christians they still have all the promises of God on their side um he who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus you know will be persecuted that they get that too but it's hard sometimes it's not always a bed of roses it's not always um easy the christian life is difficult people die even believers but the scriptures teach us that death dies as well the death of death in the death of christ borrowing john owen's title for a 17th century document the death of death in the think of that death dies what what did he mean by that um wrath is swallowed up by the son of god so that others don't have to experience the second death remember the revelation passage i didn't read it all but it talks about i might have read that part i don't remember the second death whatever that is it doesn't sound good it's not a conscious eternal punishment body and soul the death of death how does it happen he extinguishes the wrath of god for us this is how important it is to to be a believer you get you get the wrath of god against you turned from you toward the son of god he takes it for us remember that illustration i don't know if you remember it but uh, john gershner was speaking uh, sitting around a table having lunch with uh, yale scholars who were experts in jonathan edwards and they were talking about how edwards was such a wordsmith he's able to use the human language the english language and to depict the metaphors of scripture in marvelous ways and they were talking about one time when he, when he was talking about the wrath of god and god having an arrow bow and arrow up there and holding the string and any time he could let it go and when it does it goes right where god wants it to and he judges whoever and whenever he wants to and they were just marveling over it. he said they had they all had their scotch and whiskey and all that stuff going and and gershner uh says to them uh, men if edwards is right that arrow's pointed at you and they laughed or something like that they were unbelievers but they were marveling at edwards ability to you know you think about just justice the execution of divine justice what is that going to look like on the last day i don't want to experience it you don't have to and the lord jesus has ensured that all believers weak strong old young whatever won't have to because he did for us Amen. Lord, help us now. Those of us who are baptized believers and churchmen are going to take the supper. We're going to sing your praises as well. 
We ask your blessings on the word preached and the supper eaten and drank and the singing of your praises. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.